This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Exodus chapter 7, looking at uh, verses 1 through 24, just picking up where we left off from the New Testament reading earlier. Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, hear the word of God. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. 
Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for its accuracy, its truth, its power. Father, we pray as we study this passage that your spirit would be our light, our guide, our teacher. Father, give us hearts that are not hardened, but soft and receptive to your word. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The quotation that is attributed to the 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody says this, Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody, 40 years in the desert learning that he was nobody, and 40 years showing what God can do with a somebody who found out he was a nobody. And that's true, but that didn't mean that it was going to be easy. It would take 10 destructive plagues on the land of Egypt, 10 devastating acts of God's power before Pharaoh would relent and let the people of Israel go. As we read, as we read through this chapter, especially this chapter, but then uh, other chapters to come with the plagues that they describe, a prominent theme is the condition of Pharaoh's heart. As we've seen here, four times Pharaoh's heart is referred to. Uh, in verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Verse 13, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Verse 14, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And then again in verse 22, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. And that continues uh, with, with the rest of the plagues. Why this emphasis on Pharaoh's heart? Well, it really gets down, pardon the pun, to the heart of the matter. This was not so much a political contest. This was not even so much a uh, a military contest. This was a religious contest. And Pharaoh's heart was committed to the gods of Egypt, none of whom was more prominent than himself. Pharaoh was seen as deity. And for Pharaoh... To obey the word of the Lord would mean for him to place himself under the authority of another God. And Pharaoh was not willing to do that. But it does make an interesting case study, uh, certainly Pharaoh's heart, but also as we think about his heart with an eye toward our own hearts. It's interesting, and you'll notice this as we go through this, how that statement is put different ways. Sometimes it'll say Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Sometimes it will say Pharaoh hardened his heart. Sometimes it will say the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, if you're thinking, you might say, well, wait a minute. 
You know, if the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, why does he hold him responsible? How can he hold him guilty? If the Lord himself hardens Pharaoh's heart, how can he judge him for a hardened heart? I hope you were awake when we read Romans 9 because you'll, you'll, you will have noticed Paul deals with that very objection. Paul is talking about God's sovereignty to save whom he will and not save whom he will. And he raises two objections that you still hear today. First, that's not fair. Well, of course it's fair. God can save whomever he wants. He's God. It goes with the position. It means he is the ultimate determiner of what is and what will be. God does not answer to us. We can't say to him that's not fair. And as is often pointed out, fair is he would send us all promptly to hell under his judgment because that's precisely what justice warrants. That's fair. People either get what's fair or they get what's grace. But nobody has ever treated unjustly. God is never unfair or unjust with anyone. Another objection Paul raises is the one that we considered here. Well, then you'll say, well, well, how can he hold me responsible? Who can resist his will? If he's determined it's this way, how can he hold me guilty? And you'll notice Paul doesn't really answer that so much as he just objects to it. Who are you to talk back to God in that way? Who are you to challenge what God can do? And you'll notice Paul uses Pharaoh as an example. What if God is willing to raise up vessels for destruction to demonstrate his wrath in order to to accentuate, to set off his grace to vessels of mercy? Now, that's Paul. That's Paul's language. Those are Paul's uh, teachings in Romans 9. That's the teaching of Scripture is God's sovereignty over everything, including the human heart including our coming to faith in Christ or our rejecting Christ. Now, that doesn't remove human responsibility, whether we're talking about Pharaoh or whether we're talking about us and our response to Christ. We can't say, well, I didn't believe in Christ because you hardened my heart. No, no, that will not do. God says, absolutely, you are responsible. You are accountable for your rejection of Jesus at the same time. God is sovereign over all of that. And we see both dynamics, God's sovereignty, human responsibility at work in this case study that is Pharaoh. And I think that's one of the reasons you have this emphasis on Pharaoh's heart over and over and over again. But notice everything that God brings to Pharaoh. I want to look at three things in particular in this passage that that get us into the first plague, the plague of blood, uh, and then the ones that follow. Pharaoh's heart was hardened in the face of, first of all, the word of God. Verses 1 through 7. Moses is told by the Lord, I will make you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron will be your prophet. Now, Moses isn't God. God still tells him what to say. But he says the relation is, is similar to later, you know, God is giving his information, his word to the prophet who says, thus says the Lord. Well, Moses, remember, was concerned about his inabilities as a speaker. And so the Lord provides him with Aaron, good speaker. And he says, OK, Moses, you're going to be like God and Aaron's going to be your prophet. And you'll tell him what to say. And Aaron will say it well to Pharaoh. And so Verse 2, you shall speak all that I command you. Moses will tell it to Aaron. Aaron will declare it to Pharaoh. But, verse 3, I will harden 
Pharaoh's heart. And the Lord tells him what he's going to do. Uh, Pharaoh won't listen to you. I'll have to lay my hands on Egypt and bring you out through these great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know I am the Lord. That, too, is a prominent theme through these judgments, uh, the plagues on Egypt. Remember, when they first confronted Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? I don't know any, I don't know any Yahweh. Well, he will know full well, painfully well, who the Lord is before all this is said and done. The Lord says, uh, he will know, and, and all Egypt will know, that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand. And so, verse 6, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Notice the change. You don't get any more hesitation on Moses' part. They're in. They're going. They're committed. All of the objections, fears, concerns Moses had, well, those are there, maybe still there, but all we read now is of Moses and Aaron doing everything the Lord commanded them to do. They're committed. They're obedient. They do what they're told. And just the note in verse 7, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old. Now, earlier in the genealogy, uh, their father Amram lived to be 137. Moses lived to be about 120. So he's late middle age at this point uh, by, by the reckonings of, of life. He's no spring chicken, but he's not at the very end of his life either. But he's pretty far along. Aaron was even older, 83. By the way, another case of the Lord making the younger more prominent over the older, just as with Jacob and, and uh, Esau. But they come and they declare everything that the Lord says to tell Pharaoh. In other words, they brought the word of God over and over. Thus says the Lord. This is the Lord's word to you. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Same thing comes to us today. The word of God comes to us. It speaks to us. It declares to us both the holiness of God and our sin against him and the precarious position we're in under his judgment but also God's grace in providing for us a Savior. The Word of God comes to us just as it did to Pharaoh. What kind of heart does it meet? You see, the Word of God is the Word, as the parable of the soils, the parable of the sower indicates, the difference is in the condition of your heart, whether it's hard or full of rocks or full of thorns or is receptive and open to the seed of the Word of God. Well, Pharaoh's heart was that hardened, packed path totally unreceptive to the word of God, dismissive of Moses and Aaron and their message and what the Lord had to say through them. And then that brings us to not just the word of God that came to Pharaoh, but the sign of God. Look at verse 8 through 13. Pharaoh, uh, when Pharaoh says to you, verse 9, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you're to tell Aaron, take the staff, cast it down, it'll become a serpent. Now remember, this was a sign that God gave to Moses to prove to the Israelites earlier that the Lord had come to him, the Lord had spoken to him. Well, now the Lord wants him to take that same sign and use it in front of, of uh, Pharaoh to prove the truthfulness of their message. And that's exactly what they did. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron casts it down, it becomes a serpent. Well, that's pretty impressive. When that happened with Moses, remember, he ran from it. Well, 11, Pharaoh summoned his wise men, the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. How? 
There's some debate, some question. Was this some sort of trick, uh, kind of like a modern-day sleight of hand, uh, uh, entertaining presentation? It was known there was a certain kind of cobra that you could hold in a certain place. If you knew just how to hold it, it, could, it would paralyze it. Snake charmers would do that kind of thing, hold the snake. It would stiffen and become paralyzed. When we threw it down, the release and the shock of hitting the ground caused it to startle back awake and it's possible they did something like that. It's also quite possible that given the nature of what they did, they were in tune with occult powers, demonic powers, and somehow were able to counterfeit what, what Moses and Aaron did by the power of God. Whichever way, though, Pharaoh saw his own people do the same thing. And so, verse 13, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. However... In a rather ominous note, it notes that Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So even there, an implicit triumph, an implicit victory uh, in the two staffs. Well, they provide a sign to show that they're telling the truth. But you see, the world had a counterfeit. You know, it's interesting in the ministry of Jesus, so much later, unbelievers still demand a sign. Prove it. Show me something. And Jesus was unwilling to do signs on demand. Remember, he said no sign will be given you except the sign of the prophet Jonah, uh, that the Son of Man would be in the, in the ground for three days and would come out. His resurrection, in other words, he says, is, is the sign that they would have. You know, if they could just see something miraculous, they would believe, right? Wrong. Pharaoh didn't believe. Many of the Jews didn't believe. Remember the parable, recently mentioned it, of uh, the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man is so concerned for his family and just says, send someone from the grave to, to go and warn them, if so, just, just to turn them. And, he, and, and Abraham says, well, they have the law and the prophets. They have the word of God. Yes, but they'll believe if somebody comes back from the dead. And he says, no, they won't. If they won't believe the word, they won't believe even if somebody comes back from the dead. Because it's not that the word is not convincing enough, it's their hearts are hardened. It goes back to the condition of the heart. They performed a sign in front of Pharaoh. Didn't matter. Didn't change anything. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Dear friends, if you will not listen to the word of God, no sign is going to convince you. You have to believe that. You think, well, if I could just see a vision, or if God would just speak to me, If you will not believe the preaching, the teaching, the reading of God's word, you won't believe if a dead man came out of that cemetery and walked in here and told you heaven was real and hell was real. It won't make any more of an impact. Even you may think it's strange, but you may have some explanation for it or the impact would wear off because the problem is not with the sign. The problem is with your heart. The problem is not with the word of God. The problem is with your heart. You wouldn't believe, if you will not believe the scriptures, you will not believe even if somebody came back from the dead. Somebody did. His name was Jesus. Now, the signs for us are recorded in the scriptures. That's the sign Jesus gave, his resurrection from the dead. Scripturally, plenty of evidence for that. The witnesses, the change in the disciples, all of these things pointing to the reality of Jesus' resurrection. That sign that is recorded for us in scripture. Pharaoh's heart was hardened in the face of the word of God, in the face of this sign that he provided to Pharaoh, which only furthered his judgment. 
And then finally, as we begin the plagues, in the face of the judgment of God. We see that in verses 14 through 24, uh, with the beginning of the plagues, this first plague. Verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's out uh, going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, taking your staff in your hand, the staff that you turned into a serpent. And once again, to iterate the demand, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed, Pharaoh. God reminds, it's even that, that phrase, you have not obeyed, reminds Pharaoh, he's not the one in charge. He is the one taking orders, not giving orders here. God is ordering him, and he hasn't obeyed yet. Because of his disobedience, because of his hardened heart, because of his rebellion, because God is going to bring judgment on Egypt for its idolatry and wickedness, as well as deliver Israel out from Egypt, this first plague begins. Verse 17, by this you will know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned into blood. And it did. That's what happened. Now, we're familiar with that. We learned that in Sunday school. We read it in our Bibles. But it's not just the Nile River. The fish die. The Nile stinks. The rivers, tributaries flowing in, canals, ponds, pools of water, all become blood. Like something out of a ghastly horror movie. Blood everywhere. Now, someone will say, well, of course, it was, it was a natural phenomenon. As the red soil from Ethiopia would wash out with the flooding and, and the Nile would turn red in color. Or maybe it was some sort of microorganism that, that uh, contaminated the Nile that caused it to turn red. Well, some have suggested that. And it's possible that it could be something like that. And it was done at the exact time and by the decree of God. So that it's very clear it was God's doing, God's sovereignty even over otherwise natural processes that take place. That, that is a possibility, but I think it's unlikely. I mean, the text says it's blood. And it's not just the river. It's in other places. In fact, in the verse 19, it says, There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Now, vessels are supplied, even in wood and in stone. Some have suggested this isn't talking about pots. What else would be made of wood and of stone? The idols of Egypt. Suggesting even that blood covered them, a direct slap at the deities of Egypt. Now, why does this happen while, Mo while Pharaoh's going down to the Nile? Well, it could be any number of reasons. He could be going just out for a walk. He could be going down to bathe. But it's quite possible he was observing a religious rite or ritual here. Uh, the Nile was uh, attributed and associated with various deities in Egypt, including Hapi, H-A-P-I, who was seen as the god of the Nile. They would, the Egyptians would praise Hapi as the giver of life, the lord of sustenance, the one who causes the whole land to live through his provisions. 
And God, the Lord, Yahweh, smacks down this Egyptian god, Hapi, by turning his provision into rank, stinking blood. You see, their trust was misplaced. Sometimes the Lord does that to us when we trust in the wrong things. He takes them away. He spoils them. He makes them go bad to wean our dependency off those things back onto him. And so it may well be that God was directly challenging Pharaoh in his moment of idolatry by turning that in which he trusted into something that was just noxious. In fact, it's it's reduced to such a point we read that in verse 24, the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink. It doesn't say they found any, but it did say they were digging, desperately trying to find something that they could drink that was not spoiled. But once again, we read that Pharaoh's magicians did the same thing. So there must have been at least some places where Aaron had not cast out the staff, some places where they had not yet turned to blood. But notice, the Egyptians of Pharaoh could not undo the plague. They merely furthered it. They just added more blood. Somehow. They only made it worse. They didn't undo it. They didn't roll it back. They just added to the misery. And yet, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron. And the people are desperately trying to find water. Now, verse 25 says, Seven full days passed after the Lord has struck the Nile, which could be a marker between the first plague and the second plague. One of the few time references that are, that, that are given, that's given in, in these plagues. But it also may indicate that it was over those seven days that the blood eventually dissipated. It didn't remain forever. But it was a ghastly and problematic event while it occurred. You see, the Lord shows that he's the one we're to trust in. Not pagan deities, not our gods named Ira or Nasdaq, not uh, people, not abilities. The Lord sometimes in his grace and his mercy to his people kicks those props out so that we're forced to rely and trust on him, him alone, that he is the one who meets our needs. And so the Lord is showing this. Israel's going to know, or Egypt's going to know, and Israel too, Egypt's going to know who is the Lord, who is the one in whom they must trust. You know, this first plague presents us with this gruesome image, a river of blood. Puddles of blood. But you know, God hasn't finished turning water into blood. Not yet. You go to the end of the Bible, Revelation 16, verses 3 through 7, these images of God's judgment at the end. We read, The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Whether they take place on Egypt 
or whether they take place at the end. But you know, just as that blood is a symbol of judgment, the Bible also presents blood as an image, a symbol of salvation. We are redeemed, we are saved through the shed blood of Jesus. You see, even at the cross, the blood is a symbol of God's judgment. But it's his judgment on another. It's his judgment on a substitute, one who died in the sinner's place, so that to us, the blood of the cross is a sign, a symbol of our salvation. You see, Jesus offers to you his own blood, the blood of the Lamb of God, shed under the judgment of God to atone for sinful people. And so we pray that God would deliver us from sin-hardened, rebellious hearts, that we might believe in Jesus, in the Lord, and be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize your hand of judgment. But Father, even in this judgment on Egypt, it was for Israel the beginnings of your salvation. And Father, we thank you for the blood of the cross. Lord, ghastly in that we recognize that's what we deserved, to be under your judgment. And yet beautiful to us, Lord, in that it is the blood of your Son, the one you gave for us, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, let us learn the lesson of this blood, blood of judgment, yes, but in Christ, the blood of salvation. Father, we praise you for your grace, praise you, because in your mercy we know that you are the Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.